What's up, everyone? Welcome to the latest episode of Note to Scene. This week, we got some scene drama from Kellen Quinn, As I Lay Dying, a radio rundown, and our deep dive on Seosin's near breakout rise and what went wrong. You can listen to the official Note to Scene radio show over at 94.3 The X in Colorado every Saturday night from 8 to 10 p.m. local time. If you want to check it out and you're not in the area, you can download the station's app. Just search 94.3 The X in the App Store and tune in this Saturday. As always, you can listen to the songs mentioned during this episode on the Note to Scene Spotify playlist. And if you have any comments, questions, or requests for deep dives, email me at notetoscene at gmail.com. All right, let's get started. So we actually had some pretty significant scene drama this week. A woman went on TikTok and made a video titled One Like and I'll Expose the Pop Punk Frontman Who Cheated on Their Wife With Me. And next to her video was a screenshot of Instagram DMs with the verified account blurred out except an N next to the verified checkmark. The video was also soundtracked by Pierce the Veil's King for a Day, which, as you all know, features Kellen Quinn. The DM showed what I would call some nonchalant, low-key flirting. And then she posted another clip with the same video of herself with King for a Day playing and some additional DMs that also showed some low-key flirting. But she showed one more letter of the verified handle this time, so people knew the name ended in two N's, and everyone just assumed that it was Kellen Quinn. Then people started realizing that Kellen had deleted his Twitter, but what they didn't realize was that he did that in October. So by the time morning rolled around and everyone was seeing this, Kellen was trending inside the top 10 in the United States. Pierce the Veil trended earlier this year in the U.S. when they did that quarantine performance of Hold On Till May, but I don't think a scene bro has trended by himself inside the top 10 of the U.S. for at least the last four years or so. I couldn't believe how many people were talking about this. I don't like talking about people's personal lives, but when it becomes that big of a moment, you can't ignore it. Kellen eventually returned to Twitter later that day and said, I love my wife, I love my kids, and we have a real life. Trying to cancel people to get follows is pure fucking evil. I'm just going to leave this as is and hit the messenger button here before it gets too messy. In other news, As I Lay Dying's Tim Lambesis is currently in the hospital right now after he suffered burns on 25% of his body. Apparently it was caused during an accident while he was tending to a bonfire. Here's what he said. The entire gas cap fell off when I was trying to use a little from the trickle tip to get a bonfire started. Gas got all over my clothes and I ended up burning 25% of my body. I've been in the hospital since Saturday night and I will be here for a couple more weeks most likely. Today's surgery is to remove the remaining dead skin that we were unable to scrub off during dressing changes this week. It will be for the best so that we don't have to scrub so hard during dressing changes, and that is a big relief for me. I am extremely thankful for the burn center workers who are taking care of me. So I've seen lots of comments relating to karma in response to this story, and again, I'll just leave this one at that. On to this week's radio rundown, we have our all-time low updates that I know everyone is on the edge of their seats for. So currently, Monsters is sitting at number 31 on Top 40 Radio, which is up from number 43. 
that's a huge jump and much more difficult to do because of the volumes of plays that songs on Top 40 Radio get. It has 682 spins this week, which is up from the 287 it had at this point last week. And also, as of last week, it was number 7 on the Bubbling Under Hot 100 chart. So, honestly, with a little more movement on Top 40, we're looking at the first scene band to have a song on the Hot 100 since 21 Pilots. And I really have no idea when the last non-breakout scene band had a song on the chart. I don't think there has been one over the last decade. I can't even begin to describe how exciting this is for this band, and on top of all that, they're still number one on alternative radio. What is that, like 13 weeks now? It's absolutely nuts. And also, it hasn't even been two weeks since the Demi Lovato remix came out, and their monthly Spotify listeners are up over 800,000 to 5.8 million. The only non-breakout scene band in front of them is Bring Me the Horizon with 6.5 million. I mean, we might see all-time low take the top spot in 2021 here. In other radio news, MGK and Black Bear have broken the top 20 on top 40, moving up to number 19, which is also very exciting. Over at Alternative Radio, IDK Howe is still sitting at number 3, but up in plays, so that's always a good sign. I Prevail is still at number 3 over at Rock Radio as well, but they're actually down almost 5% in plays, so we'll see over the next few weeks if ACDC and Foo Fighters were just too much for them. Asking Alexandria's They Don't Want What We Want continues its charge up to the top 10, sitting at number 13 this week. I mean, it's gonna happen, people. We've been watching this song for weeks now, and I called it when they submitted it. Bring Me's Teardrops jumps to number 20, and it's up 11% in plays. I got high hopes for this one. Hopefully they don't hit a wall in the teens like they did for Parasite Eve, and they have before. Architects make a big jump this week with animals, safely inside the top 30 at number 26 and up over 28% plays. This was a big, big moment for them, and I hope next week we see them stay inside the top 30. But alright, that does it for this week's radio rundown. On to our deep dive. Seosin is probably in the top five bands of untapped potential in all of the scene's history. They went from message board hype boys to landing a major label deal all while surviving a vocalist change that ultimately only made them bigger. And trust me when I say this band was on the verge of being massive. But as we've talked about many times before, all it takes is one misstep of an album to derail everything, and that was the beginning of Seosin's fall. But as always, let's start at the beginning, which honestly for this band spirals in multiple directions. I'm going to begin with Anthony Green and we'll work our way out from there. So Anthony was in multiple bands before Seosin, as I alluded to on the Wonder Years deep dive a few weeks back. His first band was officially called Audience of One. The story is that Anthony wanted to call the band Seosin, but the rest of the members wouldn't let him. But they did end up releasing a song called Seosin. Check it out. He 
He was in Audience of One while he was in high school, and the band actually released a full-length and a demo EP before dissolving in around 2000. After this, he did a quick stint in a metal band called Jeer at Rome, which only released one demo EP. The quality is super rough, but the band was definitely heavy. Check out this song, And the Sky Falls Down Against Your Back. After this, he spent some time in a band called Zoloff the Rock and Roll Destroyers, which we talked about a few weeks back. He sang on a handful of songs on their self-titled album, but ended up leaving in 2002. Here's a song off that record called Plays Pretty for Baby. So Green and Zoloff have actually stayed in touch over the years. He sang a song on their 2004 EP, and a member of the band, Vince Roddy, actually mixed Circus Survive's album, Violent Waves. But after this, Anthony recorded a four-song demo under the name High and Driving with the drummer from Good Ol' War. It was pretty much just typical low-key Anthony. Two of those four songs actually ended up on his solo album, Avalon. But after this, Anthony officially arrives at Seosin. There's some uncertainty on how exactly the original lineup came together, but for the most part, it's understood that the first members of Seosin were Green, Bo Burchell, Justin Shikoski, and Zach Kennedy. The drummer situation was interesting, and that's where Bo's pre-Seosin storyline comes in. So Bo and Alex Rodriguez used to play in a band called Open Hand. Rodriguez was more of a longtime member, while Bo was only in it for a brief period of time. But they were like a post-hardcore grunge indie rock hybrid. Really just a young band that was trying to find their sound in a quickly changing environment for guitar music in the late 90s and early 2000s. They signed a trust kill for their first album, The Dream, which came out in 2000. On that album is a song called Life As Is. Now, I have searched far and wide, and I can't find any album credits that say Bo wrote or recorded on this record. So I just want to preface this bit with it doesn't mean that he didn't. It just means that I couldn't find any evidence online of him being associated with the album. So there is a riff in that song that is the same as the iconic post-chorus riff in Seven Years. Here it is in Life As Is. And here it is in Seven Years. This completely got lost to history once Seven Years started blowing up on MySpace in pure volume. But in the early days of the Seosin message boards, this riff was highly discussed. And I guarantee if you were to ask Bo about it today, he would just play it off. And Open Hand was incredibly small, so only the people who were truly at ground zero for Seosin knew about this. But it is what it is. Seosin blew up, and Life As Is did not. So, Bo was done with Open Hand when Seosin formed in 2003, 
but Alex wanted to finish touring duties with the group, so when Seosin went to record translating the name, he was out on the road with Open Hand. So Seosin hired a guy named Pat McGrath to record on the EP. There has been a lot of speculation over the years that Pat drummed for Slayer at one point, but the truth is, he drum teched for them. He never played for them. He was also a never officially in Seosin. He was just a fill-in to record for the EP. So after Alex fulfilled his touring obligations with Open Hand, he joined Seosin full-time and is still in the band to this day. So Seosin recorded Translating during the first half of 2003 and released it on June 17th through a label called Death Do Us Part that was apparently run by Bo and Drew Sung. It was the only release they ever put out, but it was an underground hit. It was an onslaught of dynamic, near-metallic post-hardcore that the scene hadn't really experienced at that point yet. I go back and listen to this EP all the time and still have trouble realizing that it actually came out in 2003. No band was creating those kinds of structures and executing them at the caliber that they did at that time. So the EP's out, and it starts snowballing online through MySpace, Pure Volume, and of course the message boards. People nowadays forget how message boards ruled the scene back in the day. Absolute Punk was the obvious big one everyone was on, and even the mosh pit on alt press, but so many bands had their individual boards on their own websites, and Seosin's was infamous. So much of this band's history unfolded online in front of people on the Seo boards. Going back and stitching together the remnants of theirs through archive websites made me realize how similar they were to the way stan culture operates today. And those dedicated communities back then literally launched emo into the major label world. Think about how many new bands have popped up in the scene over the last five years, and how they don't have specific areas on the internet for their community to exist. Subreddits are really the closest things we have, and even the biggest scene band subs aren't even half as active as, as the message boards back in the day were. And that lack of fan interest is one of the many reasons that the scene just fell apart. But despite all of this documentation 17, 15 years ago, the preservation of it has been a complete shitshow. It's very difficult to find info on Seosin's early touring. It pisses me off because I have so much blank space in their timeline, especially in these early years, because it just isn't documented anywhere that I can find within a reasonable amount of time. The PRP didn't even start posting about Seosin until 2010, and I can't manage to bring up Absolute Punk's Seosin tag on any archive machine. But, thanks to Lamgoat and Punk News' sporadic Seosin posts from way back in the day, I have been able to dig up a few of their early runs. If Punk News had any kind of coherent directory on their site, it would save me so much time with this shit, but their website is a nightmare under the covers. But I believe Seosin's first tour ever was with Boys Night Out and Anatomy of a Ghost. They played around 400 and 500 caps on that run. I also found a show review on Punk News of a gig in Cleveland with Spitafield, The Bled, and Seosin that was at the Grog Shop, but no mention anywhere of that being a tour. And then the next moment that I could find on their timeline is in February of 2004 when Anthony Green left Seosin. It's crazy to think about how much of a historical impact he made on the band with translating, because he wasn't even a member for an entire year before he left. As for why he left, I dug up an interview Alt Press did with the band in 2006 that explained it in much more detail than any other account I've ever heard. 
Here's what the piece said of Anthony. As Seosin's fans are well aware, Green's addition proved to be short-lived. In February 2004, he abruptly resigned from the band via cell phone in the Phoenix, Arizona airport, where he was waiting for a connecting flight back to California after flying from his hometown of Philadelphia. He just kind of freaked out and quit, qualifies Burchell. Charging on, the band, guitarist Burchell and Justin Chikoski, and the new rhythm section of bassist Chris Sorensen and drummer Alex Rodriguez held auditions for new singers, which reportedly included everyone from Midtown slash Cobra Starship frontman Gabe Saporta to former Further Seems Forever slash current action-reaction mouthpiece Jason Gleason. In the interim, the band called on Story of the Year guitarist Phil Sneed for their 2004 Warp Tour stint but none of them were as captivating as Green. Rumors of Green's alleged drug use had been circulating in the underground for quite some time. When the band are asked directly about that situation, it's as though the air hanging inside the windowless, graffiti-covered backstage area of New York City's knitting factory gets heavier. After all, Green did leave the band right in the middle of their rising popularity and the ensuing label-feeding frenzy. The latter started before the band even played their first show. How many upstart bands who, when faced with a similar situation, would respond with, dude, the guy had to be on drugs? But more specifically, drug problems? I probably shouldn't answer that, Birchall states flatly. But I mean, that's what makes him him. I don't know if that's really a problem or not for him. I mean, a problem has to be with the individual. I think questions regarding him and his character should probably be asked to him because I don't know how he is now. Since then, tension between Green and the band's two original members has passed. So there is obviously a lot to unpack here. Someone honestly really needs to make a list of all the singers of other bands who have auditioned to be in Seosin. Could you imagine if Gabe supported joined Seosin after Anthony Green? I mean, what a different world we would have lived in back in the day. But, so, the band did play, at the very least, a handful of dates during the summer of 2004. I know they didn't play the entire run, but I did to give up, up a handful of videos of them performing on the Smart Punk stage on Warped that summer. It was a notable moment for the band because, as I just read in the Alt Press interview, they had yet to find a permanent replacement for Anthony, but didn't want to turn down the Warped Tour dates, so they had Story of the Year's vocalist Phil Sneed pull double duty with them and his own band. From the videos I found, which are surprisingly good quality, it's hilarious how much he tried to sound like Anthony. I'm going to be posting those and a bunch of other classic Seosin content on the Note to Scene Twitter over the next week, so tune in on there if you want to catch some more scene history. After their warped dates that year, they began a nationwide audition to find their new frontman, but it was a certain vocal take that caught the band's ears, and they even admitted that they thought it was Anthony playing a joke on them by sending in an audition himself. I feel like I've spent literal years digging up early Seosin demos and trying to decipher if it's Anthony or Cove singing. Outside of translating the name, the band recorded two other songs with Anthony. I can tell there was an accident here earlier and Mookie's Last Christmas, and both of those songs have recorded versions with Cove, and they're honestly difficult to distinguish between the two. You could fool someone by saying each is the other vocalist and an inevitable debate would ensue. But obviously, the band chose Cove as their new frontman. He had been in two bands before, one called Stamp Out Detroit and another called Mormon in the Middle. 
Both were super low level, to the point where I doubt any of the members of Seosin had ever even heard of them when they were deciding on whether or not to bring Cove in. But they did, and then the everlasting debate between Anthony Green and Cove Reber began. I swear, you cannot have a conversation about Seosin even in 2020 and not spark an argument about which era of the band was better. Back then, it was literal scorched earth on the Seo boards, to the point where I think I remember some mods banning Anthony versus Cove debate threads. Nonetheless, despite the face of their band changing to a completely new name that nobody had ever heard before, for, the momentum didn't stop. 2005 was a huge year for Seosin. They went out on the infamous 2005 Taste of Chaos tour. Kevin Lyman literally promoted it as Winter Warp Tour. The lineup that year was headlined by The Used, with support from My Chemical Romance, Kill Switch Engage, and Senses Fail, with rotational openers Under Oath and Seosin. That tour set the scene on fire, and by the time Warped rolled around that summer, the scene was the biggest it would ever collectively be. This Taste of Chaos tour was the stepping stone for Warped to burn the country down that summer. It was the perfect spot for Seosin to be at that point, and arguably everyone else on that run as well, maybe with the exception of Killswitch Engage. In the March of 2005, while Taste of Chaos was going on, Seosin became a major label band and signed to Capitol Records. Capital is owned by Universal Music Group, which is one of the big three, alongside Sony BMG and Warner Music Group. Outside of independent labels, those three own basically the entire music industry and have subsidiary drip-down labels within each of their umbrellas. A surprising amount of the scene had its individual major label moments, and Seosin was one of them. They spent the summer of 2005 on that also infamous Warp Tour run, which again, as for most bands in the scene who had hype, is exactly where they needed to be. They released a self-titled EP that summer, which is commonly referred to as the Black EP, with early versions of songs from what would become their self-titled full length a year later. Apparently, the band wanted to just put it online for free, but Capital made them sell it with physical copies. It's always funny how majors will milk every single penny they can out of an artist. That fall, they were direct support for an Avenged Sevenfold headliner with support from Death by Stereo. It was a House of Blues size run and obviously exposed them to a slightly different crowd. It was another great look for them to close the year out. After this, Seosin took a majority of the first half of 2006 off to record their album. They went into the studio with Howard Benson, who is known for working with everyone from My Chemical Romance to the All-American Rejects. The band actually wanted to produce the record themselves, and Capital wasn't even pushing them to work with Howard. But apparently, Howard kept reaching out saying he wanted to do the album, he wanted to do the album, he wanted to work with Seosin. I actually found an interview that the band did with Alt Press in 2006 ahead of the record dropping. Here's what Bo said about that situation. The label wasn't even pushing him. It was more like Howard was calling our label nonstop and Capital was telling us, yo, dude, this is a big time guy. He really wants to do your record. At least give him a shot. So we went in to meet with him and we're like, we don't want to work with this guy at all. But then he said a couple things that sold us on it. We ended up getting along with him, so it ended up being a good combo. And truth is, between Bo and Howard, they created one of the best modern post-hardcore albums of all time. To me, there isn't one bad song on this record. 
It's far better to learn feels like the rock radio version of Under Oath's Young and Aspiring, in the sense of the anxiety and urgency it conveys, all while feeling like a post-hardcore song that was meant to be played in stadiums. And the what is my body worth, was there a price set before, there's something greater here hook really spoke to youth group kid Tyler. I was around 11 years old when I first heard Sleepers, and besides Aaron Gillespie from Under Oath, the fills in that song were one of the moments that made me want to learn how to drum. Not the most intricate stuff, but damn it just rips your face off. That really helped set a precedent for my personal tastes over the years and how I generally gravitate to faster-paced tempos and signatures. You're Not Alone was the ballad, still one of the band's biggest songs to this day. Voices was the single Capital decided to push, and it even got some rock radio play. Listen, this album is borderline flawless, and I always compare and contrast it to their Only Chasing Safety in the way their calibers were above anything else the scene was putting out at those times. But Safety was for the scene, and Seosin was to break out of it. The record officially came out on September 26th on Capitol and did 35,000 first week units, charting at number 22 on the top 200. This was their debut album. That was huge. It was the biggest first week in general that we've discussed on the show since our Bring Me the Horizon dive at the beginning of November. The scene used to be like this. It was so healthy and commercially viable that we were consistently seeing huge moments just like this from new bands. It was such an exciting time, but to be blunt, it was really all downhill from there, and although we didn't know it at the time, after this 2006 cycle, Seosin kinda was as well. But they were still on a big time wave once the album was out. They went on some fantastic tours that cycle. In the fall of 2006, they played on the International Taste of Chaos tour, which was the band's first time outside of the US. After that, they went on a run with Senses Fail and Bleeding Through in November and December. It was a House of Blues size tour, so a little above a thousand size caps. In January, they went on another House of Blues size run with Senses Fail, Alexis on Fire, The Sleeping, and Drop Dead Gorgeous. They spent late winter slash early spring of 2007 on the Taste of Chaos tour again, this time with The Used, 30 Seconds to Mars, Senses Fail, Aiden, Chiodos, and Eveline. After that, they went out on a brief US headliner with Poison the Well, but in the summer of 2007, they had the biggest touring moment of their career. They played Linkin Park's Project Revolution tour. I cannot express to you how massive Linkin Park was on the Minutes to Midnight cycle. The album was polarizing, coming after Meteora for sure, but it just fueled the conversation and the songs spoke for themselves. This was an arena tour. In Chicago, they played a 28,000 cap. In San Bernardino, they played a 65,000 cap. This was guitar music on a larger-than-life scale. Now, the tour was a bit of a mini-traveling festival at this point. They had a secondary stage, and that's what Seosin played on, so that needs to be taken into consideration when you think about the size of the crowds they actually played to on that run. The main stage lineup that year was LP, My Chemical Romance, Taking Back Sunday, Him, Placebo, and Julian K. And the side stage was Mindless Self-Indulgence, Seosin, The Bled, Styles of Beyond, Medina Lake, and Art of Dying. 
After that, Sayosin hit another North American headliner with Alexis on Fire, Envy on the Coast, Norma Jean, and The Deer and Departed. It was on that tour that they recorded their live DVD, Come Close, which is required viewing for any Sayosin fan. YouTube ribs suck. If you got any Christmas wish lists, you can get it used online for around 10 bucks. But after that, they went out with Merriweather and The Bled, and then they basically went on an international run, hitting everywhere from Australia to Hawaii. After that, they played two hometown California shows and took the summer of 2008 off. Obviously, the band toured their asses off after the release of Self-Titled, but I always wondered how much of this time off that they took in the middle of what's usually the busiest touring time of the year was a sign of things that came a little later down the road. It just felt weird that the summer of 2008 was Seosin-less after it felt like they were taking over the world for a year and a half before that. That fall, they did return to the road on a run with Under Oath and the Double Wears Prada, and they also released an EP called The Grey, which featured early versions of songs that would end up being on their new record. And then in early 2009, they officially began work on their second full-length album. This entire thing was a bit of a mess at the beginning, and it never really got cleaned up at any point. They went in with Butch Walker as the producer, and before this, he had produced albums for everyone from Avril Lavigne and Bowling for Soup to Seven Dust and Pink. Dude's been around the block and back quite a few times. But also on the producer side of the album was John Feldman, Lucas Banker, and Logan Matter, as well as Bo and Chris from Seosin, and that doesn't include additional engineers and writers that are also credited on the record. And listen, I am all for co-writing and working with different songwriters on different sounds, but this was the first time the band had ever been in that kind of environment, and sometimes bands that already have multiple members within them aren't prepared to work with that much outside influence at once. And really, Bo knows what works for Seosin and what doesn't. The dude had his own resume of albums that he worked on at this point that was impressive in itself, but they actually broadcasted a live stream of themselves in the studio recording this album in a partnership with Hurley. That's what the infamous untitled Super Heavy song with terrible sound quality that floats around on the internet came from. A lot of people just called it the Norma Jean song because of how heavy it is. Check it out. But, as the band will allude to down the road, being recorded while in the studio was not healthy for them. Sayosin basically spent most of the first half of 2009 working on this album, and the hype was through the roof, so you always have to take into consideration the pressure to deliver that any given band is facing in that kind of situation after a super successful album. They had a pretty big rollout for the record, considering how young and evolving online presences for bands still were in 2009. But in July, they revealed just the artwork and title on altpress.com, and people don't seem to remember this much, but In Search of Solid Ground originally had a completely different album cover than the one that we know of today. It was a mannequin-looking figure that seemed to be growing into or out of a tree with a red robe that was wrapped around it blowing in the wind with a dark blue backdrop and green grass. Color scheme-wise, it was super similar to Funeral for a Friend's uh, casually dressed and deep in conversation. 
but people hated that cover and i mean hated it the band got so much backlash for people not liking it that they released an apology and changed it to the clock cover two days before physical copies were going to get pressed here's the statement that chris from seosin released after the whole ordeal Obviously, the internet has become an opportunity to bash anything and everything, good or bad, so putting up anything new for people to check out is always greeted with equal amounts of crap and kisses, which was definitely the case when we put up some of our new album artwork for In Search of Solid Ground. Under normal circumstances, the negative comments would be nothing to pay attention to, but this time around, people spoke and struck really important points to who we are. We really went for something high concept on this one, which we have done before, but typically the representation of said concept is anything but extravagant. Cue in the new cover, or should I say formerly the new cover. And what we delivered was something that Seosin truly wasn't. And you guys, the fans or foes, really made us realize something about what we have done and what we are doing. When you spend a long time on something, it's really easy to lose track of where you started. And that's probably what happened here. I think the most important thing that was said that made us revise the whole thing, two days before going to the presses, mind you, is that we always keep things simple and strong and let the music speak for itself. And that's true. The Beatle was weird, I'll admit that, but it's simple and represented us at the time, and I really enjoy the what's up with that there spider on y'all's shirts, shit scary questions. And all of our EPs are a single color boring digipack, for a reason. So with all of this said, we put together a new layout and cover, it still contains some of the imagery, and coincidentally, the main image that is the cover was something we shot on the fly based on an idea I had in my brain. So below is the new cover. Is anyone and everyone going to like it? Absolutely not. It's not neon. But we did it as Seosin and with thought and purpose and an increasing respect for people that see our band and other bands' lives play out on a daily basis. And to us, that's all that really counts, and I hope you guys too. Because at the end of the day, Seosin is a fan's band. We are only a band because you guys allow us to be. By spreading the word involuntarily, pushing us to be better, remembering where we've come from, coming to shows, and supporting this monster for the last six years, Hope you guys like the new imagery, and oh yeah, the actual music on the CD it will come with. In Search of Solid Ground, September 8th, 2009, Chris Seosin. That neon comment is classic. At this point, Emo had completely given way to the scene's neon era of bright colors, and some bands were just not having it. But all of this to say that even before they released any music from this album, people just were not feeling it. After this, they dropped the first two singles from the record on August 4th, On My Own, and Is This Real. To be blunt, they were super underwhelming. Is This Real is still probably my favorite song on the album to this day. Lyrically, it helped it feel like a part two to It's Far Better to Learn, but leaning on the other side of the spirituality question. The hook is solid, but just like mostly everything else on solid ground, it's missing the spark that Self-Titled had. Changing was also released as a pre-album drop track, but In Search of Solid Ground was officially released through Virgin Records on September 8th, 2009. Despite the underwhelming response to it, the album still managed to do around 22,000 first week and debut at number 19 on the top 200. 
That's how healthy the scene was even just a decade ago. A sophomore slump could still move over 20,000 units first week. But the damage was done. The album didn't stick and fans moved on quick. But really, so did the band. The touring cycle for Solid Ground wasn't very intensive. They went on a North American headlining tour in November of 2009. Again, it was a House of Blues size run. They never really made it above that headlining level. They spent the majority of the first half of 2010 overseas again. In May, they had revealed that they had left Virgin and were no longer a major label band. They tweeted, Yes, we parted ways with EMI slash Virgin slash Capital. Not a huge deal to us. We are very excited about taking a DIY route again. A little while after this, it was revealed that they were dropped. Then, although there were some rumblings at the time, it was nearly out of nowhere when the band announced near the end of July that Cove was no longer the vocalist of Seosin. The statement came from Bo. Here's what he said. Well, a few days ago, Alex, Justin, Chris, and I got back into the studio for our first group writing slash jam session. We have all been writing songs on our own, but it was cool to get into a room and play with loud-ass amps all together again. I am very excited about this record for a few different reasons. One, I have been so busy producing and mixing bands lately, and I love it finally getting back in the swing of things, so it will be a miracle if I can rip myself away from other projects long enough to finish a Seosin record. Two, we have no label, which means we can do whatever we want. We don't have to worry about outputting garbage singles that none of us believe in or selling records. It's going to be nice, just like the days of translating the name. Three, not having a camera on me the whole time. And four, after five years with Cove, we have decided to part ways, so it will be a new experience for us. Not knowing what to expect in the vocal department, who will replace him, or if we will even find a replacement this century. That's all for now, Bo. We had no idea then, but that last line would age like a fine wine. And as we know now, Seosin never actually found a replacement for Cove, they just got Anthony back. But this announcement set fans into a complete spiral. Suddenly, anyone who had jumped shit because of solid ground was back in the conversation, asking if Cove left or he was kicked out, if Anthony was coming back, if they were going to get another random new vocalist, etc., etc. Nobody expected Seosin to be in this position again. During the onslaught of speculation, Justin Shikowsky released a statement on the SEO boards blatantly saying they kicked Cove out. Here's what he said. We kicked Cove out of the band because his stage performance and vocal performances were on a downward spiral. We didn't feel he could represent the music that we have recorded well on stage. We are not on a record label. Virgin, since that's the label we were on, didn't have anything to do with the firing. They dropped us before it all went down. We didn't kick him out because he has long hair or because he doesn't look like us. I have long hair as well, and the part about Cove being clean? This must be a joke. He was the only member of Seosin that smoked cigarettes religiously. If that's not mind-altering enough for you morons, I have smoked the devil's lettuce with him tons of times. Oh, drinking with Cove is also fun, I must say. I hope none of you judge him for it because it's his life. Free will. I'm saying this because everyone has their vices, and Cove's not exempt from that list. Either way, you can smoke as much as you want for all I care, just as long as your voice sounds great. The problem is that smoking for him is like me warming up for a show by hitting a brick wall with my bare hands. 
Listen, all I'm saying is that if you do actually know Cove or the situation, then either you are delusional or you are straight up lying to anyone dumb enough to go on YouTube and actually think you know what you are talking about. Just try to keep it real. Of course, there are two sides to every story. So here is Cove's statement that he released after everything went down. In 2003, I fell in love with a band that not only changed the way I viewed music, but also inspired me to pursue my dreams. In 2004, the members of that very band that I was madly in love with took a giant risk and gave me the world's biggest Seosin fan a shot. I got to play and make music with my heroes. Even now, Justin, Alex, Bo, and Chris are living legends in my mind. It's not very often you hear someone say that they had the amazing privilege of working with people they so highly admire and respect. But all bands have their problems, and we were no exception. It all started with one comment directed towards me. That seemingly small comment completely drained every ounce of confidence I had worked so hard to build up. Not only did it completely catch me off guard, but not one of my heroes stood up for me, let alone acknowledge that the comment made was truly uncalled for. Thinking you've let your heroes down in even the smallest way really freaking sucks. I'm sorry if any of you feel ripped off from my live performances. I take that to heart because every night that I get up on stage, I'm doing it for you guys, for the fans who come to our shows and show us support. As far as the smoking goes, it's not something I intentionally hid, but it's definitely not a habit I wanted to broadcast or promote. Let me make this crystal clear. It's not a cool thing to do. Anyone who says it is cool is flat out lying to you. We all have our demons and this is one that I struggle with. For a while now, I had been feeling like it was only a matter of time until my end with Seosin was going to come. I'm just glad I got to sing, write, and record songs with my heroes. For those of you who feel like my role in Seosin was a dominant one, for better or for worse, it wasn't. Every decision we made, we made together. Whether you feel like my departure is positive or negative, I really do wish Justin, Bo, Chris, and Alex the best of luck, and I will always support them in all that they do. Now that that's off my chest, life has been treating me awesome these days. The passion and love for music I felt I had lost is back. My confidence is growing daily, and I really can't wait to show you all what I've been working on. Thank you all for giving me the wonderful opportunity to live out my dream over the last six years. It was one hell of a ride, but I truly believe that the best is yet to come. So it's a shame because Cove had seen star potential at that point. He had a lot of people in his corner. If he would have launched another post-hardcore band at that point with the right songs, he could have made a big splash. But he decided to do an electronic project called Patriot that nobody really paid attention to. And he's in a more rock-centered post-hardcore band now called Dead American, but the glory days have long passed. But after the Cove conversation died out, so did a lot of conversation about Seosin in general. The band went fairly dark with the exception of the new vocalist rumors. In November of 2010, an old school shitty scene blog called Strike Gently ran a story claiming Seosin had chosen their new frontman, and it was Charles Fernie from the band Secret and Whisper, and before that he fronted a group called Stutterfly. Both of his bands were incredibly underrated and put out some of the best post-hardcore the scene ever had. And his voice fit that Anthony Green, Cove Rubber mold perfectly, but Seosin quickly released a statement denying he was their new frontman. Here's what they said. Thanks for the update from Strike Gently, but unfortunately, we do not have a new singer yet, and it is not Chris from Secret and Whisper. Information pollution. 
And when I say Strike Gently was shitty, I mean scene blogs really don't get much shittier than that one. A majority of the site was literally just porn and scene kid limewire with free mp3 downloads floating all over the place, and at one point they basically became Johnny Craig's personal blog because all they did was post about him. And then they just pretty much ended up vanishing pretty quickly. After the secret and whisper nonsense, the fan conversation about Tillian Pearson quickly started to bubble after he was kicked out of his first band, Tides of Man, because he expressed interest in wanting to join Seosin. This is where timelines get complicated because there was also mutual interest between Tillian and Amorosa as they had just kicked out Johnny Craig. Okay, so the beginning of 2011 was the first time Seosin publicly addressed the situation with Tillian. Justin dropped this comment on the Seo boards. Here's the truth, since I can't stand rumors. Tillian has been hitting us up. A lot. It looks like he wants the job pretty badly if he would just quit his band. But the reality is we haven't even met the guy in person. Everybody is talking about step number 54, joining the band, when we haven't even taken care of step number 2, actually meeting. The next thing to do on the to-do list is rehearsing songs that we have already released. We will record the session, which is a great test for a singer just because of the pressure factor. Also, it's a great way for us to hear what he sounds like in a band setting. We've done this with everyone that we have considered for the position. January is the set time for step number two. Wish us luck. We are going to need it. So that came before Tillian had been removed from Tides, but once Tillian was out of that band, he released a statement of his own addressing the situation. Here's what he said. For the record, I didn't quit Tides of Man. I expressed interest in pursuing the open spot in Seosin to the guys in Tides. The reactions were mixed, and I got kicked out of the band. They didn't want a singer slash leader to be in the band with that kind of doubt in his mind. Though I don't like it, I respect their decision. In a more perfect world, I would have had full trust and support from my friends in Tides and would have been able to pursue the open spot in Seosin and possibly stay in both bands, but this would all depend on whether it even worked out with Seosin in the first place. As of now, I have never even met a member of Seosin. We got connected months ago from a member of O Sleeper. I have recorded a demo, and so far, a couple of the guys said they loved it. I didn't hear from the other two. They could hate it for all I know, or could completely be indifferent. From what I have gathered is each member has a totally different opinion regarding me so far. I am meeting up with all of them in January, and we will see how it goes from there. I think it could potentially turn into something amazing, or it could turn into nothing. The future is completely uncertain for me, but it is fucking exciting, and I'm grateful for the position I am in. All I can say is nothing is going to stop me, and I am confident that, if necessary, I will be able to start with absolutely nothing to create a new band, a new project, that will blow away anything I have been a part of in the past. So. That first demo ended up leaking fairly quickly, and I've always wondered if Tillian was the actual leaker behind any of his Seosin demos. He was in a tough spot. He didn't really have a job, but was on the brink of joining two very notable scene bands, and a lot of eyes were on him at the time. But Tillian being the leaker is pure speculation on my part. The first demo that surfaced was called Promises, and it got a lot of people excited. It was certainly more solid than anything off solid ground, and people were comparing Tillian to everyone from the band's Anthony era to Claudio from Coheed and Cambria. Check it out.
Reptilian released a pretty big statement in July of 2011 in response to a fan on Formspring where he details his entire history with Seosin at that point. Here's what he said. I don't avoid the subject. It's also not true that I sought them out persistently. We were hooked up by a mutual friend and they sent me a demo. Then they came to watch a Tides of Man show and said they loved it and would love to hear me on the demo. I recorded it in December, which was Promises. Afterward, they told me they would love to do an album with me and wanted to meet up. Obviously, I was pretty stoked on it and told them I would love that. I had been talking to mainly Bo and Alex. When the Tides of Man split happened, rumors started spreading that I was already in the band. This pissed Justin off, who I had never really talked to, and he posted a pretty negative statement about me. That day, I got apologies from the rest of the band members and assurances that they were optimistic something was going to come of it. I went to California in January. We did a couple of rehearsals and recorded another demo. When I went home, they asked me to record another demo, so I did and sent it to them. After that, they basically said, we know that this sounds vague, but we want to do an album with you. That has been the agreement since. I am not an official member of the band, but we are officially doing an album with me on vocals and we will see where it goes from there. Later, Chris sent me the instrumentals for an idea he had, the first demo that leaked. I did rough vocals on it and quickly sent it to them before it was done because I had to leave home to do a few Amorosa dates. About a month ago, I visited them again to jam out some song ideas. While I was having lunch with Bo and Alex, Bo suggested that I start another project to keep me busy while they prepare to write the third Seosin album. I had talked about this with Chris a few weeks before as well. They mentioned that it would be unfair of them to have me sit around and wait for them at this point in my life when I could be putting energy into another project. Obviously, I was stoked to hear that. As it sits now, I am committed to doing an album with Seosin, and I will fulfill that obligation. I have started up with Archives and will put my energy towards its success. I also think I have some sort of contractual obligation with Rise Records. I'd previously planned to do a solo album with them. I have a good amount of material written for it, but I have doubts about Rise's confidence that it will sell a lot of copies right now. And to answer your other question, I have always been a fan of Seosin and love their music. I wouldn't say I held translating the name as a Bible, but I do love Seosin's music, and I am beyond excited to work with them. Tillian had clout at this point, but it paled in comparison to even just the Kellen Quinns of the scene that were just getting going in the new era. And as I mentioned, he did start a new band during that time called Archives. I believe he only released two demos under that name. But the problem for Seosin became long periods of inactivity. There are ways to turn that kind of mystique into momentum for your band. I mean, anyone who has studied brand new understands that. But Seosin did not. They never mentioned Tillian being a member again, and although a few more demos surfaced, fans just moved on. But in 2016, Chris Sorensen from Seosin did an interview with Chorus, which used to be Absolute Punk, and spilled the details on what went wrong with Tillian. Here's what he said. Somewhere in that period of the year after Cove was out, we had tried out a few singers, including Tillian Pearson, who was in Dance Gavin Dance now. He was, at the time, in Tides of Man. We had flown him out to California, we had rehearsed with him, and written three or four new songs with him singing. We felt like it was going to be the end-all be-all, but basically, if we had done anything with Tillian, it would have been cool for about a year, but ultimately, we would have had to break up. It just wasn't going to work on a long-term basis. In February of 2012, Seosin tweeted that they were no longer in search of a new vocalist. 
which made people think that they had acquired one and were moving to the next stage. But as history showed us, that was not the case. By the fall of 2012, many fans assumed the band had broken up because it had been nearly an entire year and there hadn't been any updates. But in December of 2012, Anthony Green was playing a solo show and was joined on stage by Bo and Justin for a performance of seven years. At that point, it was nostalgic. It felt weird as a fan, like we were pretty far removed from the situation at that point and didn't realize it till we saw that performance. Then in February of 2014, over a year later, it was announced that Seosin would be reuniting with Anthony Green to perform at that year's Skate and Surf Festival, as well as on a West Coast tour. It just felt so good to have Anthony and Seosin back together. Over half a decade of conversations and comparisons later, the original foundation layer was back. Now, in the summer of 2014, I had just started writing for Alt Press for a few months at that point, but my old friend, Matt Crane, wrote an op-ed titled, Why It's Time for a New Seosin Album, Even If It Means No Circus Survive for a While. And Anthony Green lost his mind. He replied to the Alt Press tweet about the piece saying, You should change that headline, it's misleading as shit. He replied to other fans who were on his side too. It was so ridiculous because all you have to do is read the piece to see that it's an opinion piece. And after everything Anthony said, what ended up happening? Seosin came back with him and Circus Survive went on hold for a minute. Scene bros, and trust me, musicians in general, never cease to amaze me with the bullshit they'll try to pull. But at the end of the day, Seosin came back with Anthony. They signed to Epitaph and released their third album, Along the Shadow, in May of 2016. The album was good, but it wasn't the classic Seosin sound we all wanted. And ultimately, I pinned that on Will Yip. I was so pissed when they said he was gonna produce the album. Bo is more than capable of making a Seosin album sound like Seosin. Yip made his name working with fourth wave emo and scene grunge bands like Balance and Composure and Title Fight and Tiger's Jaw, and he has this tendency to put a down-tuned sheen over everything he touches. I was so worried when it was announced he was going to do that to the last Menzingers album, but he didn't manage to fuck that record up too much. But Along the Shadow is bogged down by unfortunate production choices that doesn't offer the life the songs have when you hear them in a live setting. But this record ended up doing around 12,000 units first week though, and was honestly impressive considering where the scene was headed in 2016. That year, I mean, they outsold everyone from the Devil Wears Prada to the Word Alive, and since then they've done sporadic shows and small tours. 2018, they played a show in California where they brought Cove on stage to perform self-titled songs. It was the first time the band had performed with him in eight years. There has been recent talk of a new Seosin album. Bo likes to tease things on his Instagram account in case anyone wants to tune in. He did produce the most recent Senses Fail album and is doing the next one as well. He recently re-recorded I Can Tell There Was an Accident Here earlier and Mookie's Last Christmas and gave them official releases on streaming platforms, which was really cool to hear for all of the OG fans. I know I titled this episode about the band's fall, but the bottom line here is that Seosin scratched and clawed their way to scene infamy. There will never not be a debate between Anthony and Cove eras, and I think at this point there's something endearing about that. Seosin may have not survived the scene, but their conversation did. 
and you can't put a price on that. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any requests for deep dives, email me at notetoscene at gmail.com. You can subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Note to Scene on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you enjoy the show, please drop a review on iTunes. I'd appreciate it very much. Until next week, stay safe, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye.